If you would, please turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. In your bulletins, I have that we are starting in verse 1, but I'm going to move forward a little bit and actually start us off in verse 7. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. And we'll read down to verse 14. Next week, we'll be starting a series into the book of Philippians, which many know or have come to identify the book of Philippians as the book of joy, the book of encouragement. So I am really looking forward to that. I hope that you're looking forward to that as well. But for now, let's focus. I hope that we can focus on what the Lord has for us this morning. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 So Moses meets with God in the mountain, and the Lord says this to Moses. Pick it up in verse 7. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Say this, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you may help us as we come. Help us to stand under your word. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to be equipped. Help us to be convicted by your word. I pray that you would grant us the humility to receive your word, and I pray, God, that your word would have a transformative effect upon our hearts and our minds this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In Leo Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich, Ivan suffers from an incurable illness and ends up being on his deathbed, and nobody seems to care including his family. Now, Ivan was very materialistic. He loved the finest things in life. He loved those things that made him look much more valuable and brought him more dignity in the eyes of others, so much so that he loved these things more than his own family, and his family knew that. So as he's on his deathbed, and nobody seems to care that he's dying, 
the lovelessness of his family and his friends becomes much more tormenting to him than the illness that takes over his body. But surprisingly, the one who shows him any kindness is his servant, the one that you would least expect. And the kindness of the servant has this kind of, a, this kind of revelatory and transformative effect upon Ivan. Had, that, had Ivan, I think, survived his illness, I think he would have shared the kindness that was given to him that he knew that he didn't deserve. Because when you receive, a, receive kindness from somebody, especially when it's a kindness that maybe you don't deserve or you don't expect, you have a tendency to share that kindness or tell other people about that kindness you experienced. Kindness is powerful. To be kind to somebody is to treat them like family. Kindness, not always, but sometimes, can transform the heart of a person, especially the heart of a person who knows that they don't deserve any kindness. Kindness is how God acts towards us. Titus chapter 3 tells us that when the goodness and kindness of God appeared, God saved us. Romans chapter 3 tells us that, that the kindness of God is, led, is meant to lead us to repentance. However, this sermon is not necessarily about kindness, but about the transformation that happens in our lives as a result of the kindness of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that transformation is lived out. The church is a people who have received by faith the gospel kindness of God and as a result live out the gospel in all aspects of their life, in their social life, in their private lives, in their home, in the workplace, wherever they go. So today we're finishing our series on what is the church by concluding on this last essential mark of the church, and, this, and that is the mark of evangelism. Now, before we talk about evangelism, I think it's important to talk about the content of evangelism, and that is the gospel. I think it's important to begin here because if we're going to talk about how the gospel transforms our lives and how this transformed life is lived out, and before we even begin to talking about sharing the gospel, I think it's important that we make sure that we understand what is the gospel. So for that, I'm turning to the book of Exodus and then fast forwarding to the gospel of John. And I hope that it'll be clear why I'm kind of, I'm intending to draw some particular themes that we see in Exodus that I think are reiterated in the gospel of John, particularly John chapter 6. So in the book of Exodus, we see first this cry of deliverance. The story begins with Moses on a mountain, and he meets with God. And God tells Moses that he is well acquainted with everything that's happening to his people. This is what God says to Moses. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. The cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have seen the oppression. So God knows what is going on. It's not just like a, a no with not an intent to do anything about it, but God knows, he understands the dire situation of his people and he means to rectify that situation. So God intends to send a man as a representative to his people to proclaim the coming deliverance. And that man was Moses. So God intends to send Moses back down the mountain after their meeting, send him to his own people, and proclaim the Lord's deliverance. 
And even though Moses is the one that is sent by God to proclaim his deliverance, even though Moses is the one through whom God performs these miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt and delivers God's people from slavery in Egypt, essentially it is God who's doing all the work. Even in this conversation between God and Moses, God himself himself says that I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, and land flowing with milk and honey. So we see immediately that God isn't just this distant God who is high and holy, who is up there and has not a single care for everything that happens in the world, but he looks at the situation of his people. And he says that I have heard their sufferings. I know the situation and I am the one who has come down to deliver my people. So then fast forward to the gospel of John. And there is another cry for deliverance. And yet there is, there is a deliverance that people are in need of that they don't realize. So John chapter 6, picking it up. So this is Jesus. There's a large crowd following Jesus, and Jesus gets on a mountain, and he refuses to send the people back home without without some food, without some dinner. So John chapter 6, picking it up in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Jumping ahead to verse 25, Jesus goes ahead with his disciples and the crowd continues to follow him. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, that what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, 
but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So Jesus had just fed 5,000 people. More than 5,000, because it's only counting the men. And surely there were women and children involved. So there was a lot more than 5,000 people who were fed with just five barley loaves and two fish. Which means that there are over 5,000 people who witnessed this sign, this particular miracle. And they immediately conclude that this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. And they're getting that from Moses. Back in Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses said to God's people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And here is Jesus on the mountain, feeds the people. Moses similarly was commissioned on the mountain. Moses often went up to the mountain to converse with God. Moses would come down from the mountain and deliver the words of God to the people. Moses, and Jesus telling us, it wasn't actually Moses, but God fed people manna from heaven while they wandered in the wilderness. Jesus is here feeding over 5,000 people with bread and fish. Any Jew who knew their history, any Jew who knew the five books of Moses would have immediately seen the parallels and have come to the conclusion that Jesus is the prophet that Moses was talking about back in Deuteronomy. But Jesus is much more than a prophet. He is that prophet, but he's more than that. Jesus says that he's come down from heaven. And he offers them a different manna. A manna that will result in eternal life. That they can have if they will believe in him. And then they ask for a sign. Well, then what sign do you do? What sign will you perform to show us that you are who you say you are? Even though he had just performed a sign of feeding over 5,000 of them. And Jesus doesn't deny them the request. Instead, he points, to a, he points to a sign. He points to the sign of himself. He says that I am the bread of life. I am the manna from heaven. I am the word of God. Come down from heaven. And Jesus has come to provide a deliverance. The Jews want a deliverance from the Romans. Today, people are seeking deliverance. People want deliverance from financial debt. People want deliverance from their jobs that they don't particularly like. People want deliverance from suffering, from sickness, from illness, from anxiety, from distress, from bad marriages. But Jesus has come down from heaven to provide a different kind of deliverance, a deliverance from something much worse. The reason I began the gospel by first opening up to Exodus, it's not so much to draw these connecting themes between the Exodus and what we see here in John 6, but it's to help us to understand that just as God said he has come down from heaven to deliver his people, so Jesus has also come from heaven to deliver his people. But providing a different kind of deliverance, just as God was responding to a grim situation, so Jesus has come down from heaven to provide relief from a much more grim situation. 
So then we go then to man's need for deliverance. And what is this deliverance that man needs? First, it is a debt that he cannot pay. Colossians 2.13 tells us, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and nailing it to the cross. Our deliverance comes from our receiving God's forgiveness, which he does by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. And that record of debt is our sin. Every time that man sins, it's another charge to the credit card. And no matter how much you earn to beef up that savings through your own efforts or through your own works, it is never enough to pay off that debt. It is an astronomical debt. But it's not just the quantity of our debts that we cannot pay. It's also the value of the one that's been sinned against, and that is God. One little sin against against a holy and just God immediately puts you into a debt that you can never pay. It's like keying, keying an old truck and keying a Lamborghini. If you key an old truck, the owner probably is not going to care because it's an old truck, it's decrepit, it's rusting out, he's not going to care. But if you key a Lamborghini, well, that's going to be, there's going to be more consequences, right, because of the value of the car, because of how expensive the parts are. Sinning is not just sinning against a person, But sin essentially is sin against a holy and just God, the creator God, the one who has authority above all other authorities. But here in the passage, we see that Jesus has come down from heaven, that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and in the salvation that he provides through his death burial, and resurrection is completely forgiven of all their debt. There's nothing left to pay. But it's not only a debt that we cannot pay, it's also a heart. We have a heart that we cannot change. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. The Bible has a category for living dead men. Dead and that they actively pursue the lust of their hearts and continuing in a pursuit of sin. Pastor says, dead in trespasses and sins, following course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of our flesh, a heart that is continually given to sinning. When my daughter throws a fit and cries, 
we might tell her to, to stop crying, to stop throwing a fit, and sometimes she responds by saying, I can't help it. Sinners cannot help but sin. It's what it means to be in dead, to be dead in trespasses and sins. Telling a sinner to stop sinning is like telling a four-year-old to stop throwing fits. It's impossible. Romans even goes so far to tell us that even a lack of honoring and thanking God is considered a sin to God and worthy of judgment. And going back to the cancellation of debt, it is not only that man continues to sin and accrue this large debt that he cannot pay, it's also the fact that it's also that he doesn't care. Continuing to charge the credit card carelessly. This passage also is telling us that we were once under a taskmaster, the prince of the power of the air, also known as the devil. Very much like God's people had their taskmasters in Egypt. But in Christ, we are made alive. And to be made alive in Christ is to no longer have a heart that cannot help but sin. Instead, its desire is to please God. To be made alive in God through Jesus Christ is wanting to live a life that pleases the Lord. So it's not only a debt that we cannot pay, it's not only a heart that we cannot change, but there's also chains that we cannot break. Romans 6.20 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the passage tells us that we were once slaves of sin. Kind of carrying the same idea in the Ephesians passage. Now, this passage in Romans speaks to our bondage to sin. Again, parallels the bondage that Israel endured while slaves in Egypt. And the gospel of Christ is the breaking of those chains that result in our being free instead to enslave ourselves to righteousness, to enslave ourselves to Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself says in the gospel that his yoke is easy and light. By the way, when God spoke to Moses and had said to him that he has come down, he also said that he's come to bring them out to a new land. Jesus also has said that he had come down from heaven and that all those who believe in him, he will then raise up on the last day. And we see the same language in Ephesians as well in the passage that we just read. Being raised up with Jesus Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is what the Lord does through this incredible deliverance. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that Christ breaks us free from our bondage to sin, our bondage to the devil, that Jesus Christ changes our heart so that we want to live for God and love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, cancels our debt of sin. So this is the grace and the kindness of God. 
And for one who has received such grace and kindness, they cannot help but live out that deliverance and even proclaim that deliverance. In Ephesians 4.11, we have, and I mentioned this before, and we talked about this last week when we talked about the office of elders. But Ephesians 4.11, I think what we see there is a grand vision for the church. And he gave, for Ephesians 4.11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So how do we live out this deliverance that we received to the gospel of Jesus Christ? The Bible here, I think, has given us a grand vision for the church. And our great vision, our great ambition as a church collectively together should be to grow up, to mature. The point is that we are all to grow to reach the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. So that we may no longer be children who cannot help but throw fits when somebody offends us or easily believe everything that is out there in the world. But we are to be grounded and established in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must show ourselves distinct from the rest of the world. In the early church, the Christians were easily distinguishable from the rest of the world. And even today, I mean, there's, it's, although it's very different, Christians today right, should still be easily distinguishable from the rest of the world. Right? You're not engaging the same activities that people enjoy engaging in, like say casinos, excessive drinking, drugs, maybe the kind of music. We're not quick to anger, but instead we're quick to forgive and reconcile with people. We're not engaging in dirty jokes. We're looking to build people up instead of tear them down. Even our social media presence right, should look distinctly from the rest of the world. When you read the New Testament, when you read the, the letters of the apostles, and the things that they wrote to these early churches, you can see that what mattered a lot to them was was their character. So they admonished them, exhorted them, they commanded them to pursue unity, to pursue reconciliation, to love one another, to serve one another, to be engaged in fellowship, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to maintain unity with each other. This mattered a lot to the apostles because it was important for them that the churches, that the people who make up the church lived a life that was consistent with the gospel. For these early Christians, in their time, it was a time of paganism. And it's no different today, but it just looks differently. For them, there were actual temples. People actually had images and idols in their home. And so when a believer, when somebody comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, well, then, then come down the idols and the images in their home, they stop going to the temple. And that's noticeable. 
when you have somebody into your home and then they ask you, hey, what happened to the idols in your home? Or, hey, I haven't seen you at the temple lately. Or when you're going out to the meat market, for those who have a weaker conscience, they might go and ask, has this meat been sacrificed to idols? And if the answer is yes, then they turn it down. And the natural question is, well, why, what's wrong with that? Christians were radically different than everyone else. And I don't think it's all that different today, or at least it shouldn't be that different. And I think it's becoming increasingly so that Christians must distinguish themselves from the rest of the world. Thanks to LGBTQ agendas and that movement, thanks to movements like critical race theory and the inserting of uh, justice and uh, putting things in the category of oppressors and, and, and those who are oppressed in the workplace and helping people to think about those categories in the workplace and how does that work out? how people want to be identified, which gender they want to be identified as. All these things are going to make Christians more distinguishable than the rest of the world. Even COVID, I think, has a way of distinguishing Christians from the rest of the world. I mean, once we do get to a time where we are going back to the way things were pre-COVID, I think the Christian church will see which ones are the ones who are enduring in the Christian faith. Because there's a lot of my fear is that there's a lot of Christians in the world that have become increasingly comfortable with just doing church from home. Oh, this, is, this actually worked out great. I'm used to this. Uh, why do I need to go to church when I can just live stream it each and every week? Right, there'll no longer be an excuse to stay home and people still choose to stay home and do church that way and neglect the regular meeting, neglect the regular fellowship, which Hebrews commands us to do. So all of these things, all these different issues will determine how you engage people, how you relate to people, how you talk to people. It'll determine what things you become a part of. It'll determine even how you raise your children or your choice of words. All of these things are going to make Christians more distinguishable from the rest of the world. And so the quality of character and the quality of the churches mattered a great deal to the apostles. And if were they alive today, they would, it would be no different to them, I would think. And surely evangelism matters. And we must pray for the boldness to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the quality of our church and our individual character is becoming increasingly, increasingly important. And we must not betray the gospel of Jesus Christ through our conduct or through our manner of living, because what good does it do to share the gospel with people and live a lifestyle that is contrary to the gospel of Christ? It is your conduct that will provide many opportunities to give a defense for the hope that you have in you, as Paul tells Timothy. And so this vision is necessary, that we maintain this unity, that we grow up in this unity, that we reach the stature of the fullness of Christ, which we won't in this lifetime, but we strive for it. And the gospel deliverance also gives us a mission to work for while we strive to reach that vision. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The great mission of the church is to make disciples. And you know what? You and I never stop being disciples. We are still disciples, no matter how long you've been a Christian. And we come each week and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve one another. We fellowship with one another. We seek to build each other up. We pray for each other. We encourage each other as a means of discipling one another. And we share the gospel of Jesus Christ as a way of making disciples. Nobody becomes a disciple of Christ without first hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this mission includes certainly personal evangelism. It includes church planting. It includes missions giving and missions sending and missions going. The point is that as long as there are people in the world who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we need to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The vision is what we do as we live out the deliverance that we received in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Living a service of Christ, pleasing the Lord and giving him all the glory, living a life of obedience as a fruit of our salvation, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, loving our neighbor as ourself. And the mission is how we proclaim the gospel, the church preaching the truth, standing in the truth, contending for the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints, being a pillar of the truth, baptizing, teaching, discipling one another, planting churches, missions, evangelism, And in our effort to evangelize the world, I think what is most important as a church is that we first create a culture of evangelism. We need a culture of evangelism. Creating a culture of evangelism is not having evangelism programs. You can have a bunch of programs, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a culture of evangelism in your church. Because programs, and I'm not saying that they're pointless, because they're not pointless, but programs can easily become something that we just check off a list. Yes, we're doing evangelism, check. We did it this month, just check. Neighborhood movie nights are a great idea. I've heard churches doing golf tournaments, tournaments in the community as a way to evangelize. Those are not pointless but this should not be the primary way that we share the gospel. A culture of evangelism also isn't community engagement. Again, not that we never do that, not that, it's, that that's pointless, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a culture of evangelism. It doesn't necessarily mean that collectively the church is thinking and praying and talking about evangelism. So then how do we create a culture of evangelism? What does a, a culture of evangelism, evangelism look like in the church? It looks like this. Oh this, is, oh, this is how we cultivate that kind of culture. We need to first think about evangelism. Uh, weeks ago, I sent uh, the, in a newsletter these, these New Year's questions. And one of those questions was, for whose salvation will you pray most fervently this year? Maybe some of you have thought about that. I know that some of you have thought about that. 
But if you haven't, consider thinking about that question. For whose salvation will you pray most fervently this year? One way to think about evangelism is to think about who needs salvation in your circles. Who needs the gospel of Jesus Christ? We need to think about evangelism. And if we want to create a culture of evangelism, we also need to pray about evangelism. It's one of the reasons why we pray for something missions-related each week on Sunday mornings. It's to help kind of cultivate a, a, a culture of missions and evangelism to help us to not forget that there are people in the world who still need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you praying in your personal devotions? Are you praying regularly for someone's salvation or people's salvation? So not just thinking about evangelism, not just praying about evangelism, but also talking about evangelism. Do you talk about lost people? Do you talk to one another about people that you are praying for that would, they would come to saving faith in Christ? Are you inviting others to pray with you for this particular person, whether it's a friend or a spouse or a coworker? I think that one of the reasons why many Christians don't really talk about evangelism is because they find it so intimidating. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But we need to talk about evangelism. We can have a plethora of evangelism programs, and we can even have an active presence in our community. But if we never think about evangelism, if we never pray about evangelism, if we never talk about evangelism, then all these programs, community efforts, will just be things that we check off a list. Talking about evangelism has to be something that's ongoing. An ongoing, maybe not a conversation that we have every single time we see each other, but it has to be a point of conversation sometimes at least. The greatest and most effective efforts of evangelism, and I think I've said, I'm sure I've said this before, the greatest and most effective efforts of evangelism, I'm convinced, come not from programs, but it comes when Christians live out the gospel wherever they are and developing relationships with those around them. Francis James Grimke, was, he was an African-American pastor. He's speaking about the church. He says, its value to the community does not depend upon the size of its membership, but upon the quality of the men and women that make up this membership. It is through the individual members in their personal character in life and their contact with others that it is to do its most effective work. Amen to that. So we think about evangelism, we pray, and we talk about evangelism. And we must also share the gospel. We need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Romans is clear that no one will be saved apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have to be in the work of sharing the gospel of Christ. We believe intellectually 
that justification is through faith alone in Christ alone. We believe that nobody is saved apart from the work of Christ, by, that nobody is saved apart from believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But my fear is that many Christians actually, practically speaking, function more like universalists and that everybody is going to be saved at the end of the day. But the Bible doesn't teach that, that only those who believe and repent are saved. And so we need to preach the gospel. I get it. Right? It's, it can be really intimidating. It's scary to share the gospel with somebody, whoever that person might be. And so let me just give you just a few words of encouragement because I understand that tension. I feel that tension. I feel that same intimidation. First, remember that the burden of salvation is not on your shoulders. You don't save anybody. All you're doing is offering the gospel. Salvation is not dependent upon you, but it is in God and God alone. So don't put that burden upon yourself. And pray for boldness. Pray that the Lord will give you the boldness to preach the gospel to those in your circles, that God will provide or that you will seize those opportunities to share the gospel with people. And you don't, you don't have to have the gift of evangelism. You don't have to be a daring person. You don't have to be an, a very courageous person. You don't have to be the kind of person who doesn't really care about what people think of them to share the gospel with people. Because there aren't, there aren't a lot of people like that. There aren't a lot of Christians with the gift of evangelism. There aren't a lot of Christians who can strike up a random conversation with a random stranger, stranger and immediately get to the gospel. Most Christians are not like that. And if you feel bad that you're not like that, that's, you should not feel bad about that. It is okay to not be like that. In my prayer, and I hope that it, is, it will be yours as well, that the Lord will gift to some people in our church this gift of evangelism. We could learn from people like that. But if you don't have that gift, the Lord hasn't given you that gift, that's all right. You don't have to be articulate. You don't have to have the gift of evangelism to share the gospel with people. All you need to do is be a good neighbor. Be a good coworker. Be a good friend. Develop relationships with people is, the, I think, the easiest way to share the gospel with people and get over that intimidation. And you don't have to articulate the gospel in the way that it was presented today. All you need to know is just four basic things. You need to know man's need, that he has a debt he cannot pay, that he owes to a holy and just God, that he has a heart that he cannot change. And that, and that God means to bring that, it means to balance that account. You need to know man's need. You need to know the person of Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God come down from heaven to provide a deliverance. 
And you need to know the work of Christ, that Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead in order that, in order to pay off that debt, in order to change the heart of man. And you need to know man's response. What is the response to this message? To believe and repent. And to make things, I hope, to make things a little easier, again, think about how intimidating it might be to share the gospel with people. Think of it this way. Think of it as a, of, think of a scale from zero to ten. Zero, dead, not a care for Christ, not a care for God, and ten, being fully alive in Jesus Christ, given to Christ, following Jesus Christ. The reason why you want to develop relationships with people and, and, and have that kind of trust to be able to one day share the kindness of God that you've received through Jesus Christ is so that you can at least get a person from a zero to a one or one to two or two to three. That's still gospel work. That's still wonderful. That's still, in a way, that's still doing evangelism. Even if the person doesn't get saved, it's rare when you have a conversation with somebody and you share the gospel and they immediately come to saving faith in Christ. That's rare. But evangelism looks more like getting somebody from a one to a two or two to a three where their heart is softening a little bit more. And you know what? That neighbor that you're trying to get from a zero to a 10, he might end up at a three and because circumstances change, they might move to another state or you might end up moving to another state. And that's all right. Again, because the burden of salvation is not on you. But just maybe another person, another Christian might present themselves to that person. And that person will have an easier time sharing the gospel with that person because you've already done the work of getting that person from a zero to a one. Or one to a two. And then somebody else might come along and get that person from a four to a five. And then somebody else, another Christian might come along and get that person from a five to a seven. And another one might come along and get that person from a seven to a ten. But it's all because you were there and started the groundwork and got them from a zero to a one. And others came along and got them further and further along. Evangelism and sharing the gospel is a slow and gradual process. And we have to be okay with that. I'm thankful that in the New Testament, we don't have any explicit commands to be sharing the gospel a certain amount of times a year or in a season or in a week or in a day because I think there would be a lot of Christians walking around with a guilty conscience. But I think it's much more manageable to think of it that way, that every time that you maybe go to the same barber or go to the same pharmacist and you strike up a conversation and maybe insert a 10-second gospel presentation And maybe, just maybe the Lord, by the Spirit, is using that moment to bring them from a zero to a one. And I think that's honoring to the Lord. The Lord honors that. That is still engaging in evangelism. But it requires doing the hard work of developing relationships with people, getting to know people, becoming friends with people, showing a genuine interest and care for people. And so if we want this culture of evangelism, we have to think about sharing the gospel, pray about evangelism, 
talk about sharing the gospel, and then we must also share the gospel. And so we are called to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever we go, showing ourselves distinct from the rest of the world, and even using that as opportunities to share the gospel with the people. Why are you so different? Well, this is why. And so may the Lord help us to cultivate that kind of culture in our church. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that the, your grace and kindness has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He has provided for us a deliverance that we so desperately needed, yet at the same time we did not necessarily want. But having received such kindness, Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to love our neighbor as ourself. Help us to look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Because you, Lord, look to our interests. You did not remain in heaven holding on to your majesty, to your dignity, to your royalty. But you came and added to yourself a human form to live as one of us, yet without sin, and died for us and rose for us so that we may be saved, so that we can experience this kindness, so that we can live out this kindness, and so that we can also proclaim this kindness. And so may we be a people who pray or who preach this kindness to the lost world. Help us to cultivate that culture of evangelism. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.